Okay, if you'll turn to Matthew 26 with me. We consider the transfiguration of Jesus in the first hour, and now we're going to move to a different experience, a very, very different experience that our Lord had in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, I'm going to begin in verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And He took with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with Me. And He went a little beyond them and fell on His face and prayed saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, If this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Let's pray again and ask God's help as we consider a few things from the passage. Lord in heaven, we pray for grace and for the Spirit of God. Indeed, the Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And we need you to come from heaven and help us. As we consider these things, we pray that we be unto the edification of your people and the salvation of sinners and unto the glory and honor of your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. It's very interesting, as we were singing that first hymn, Watch and Pray, it was based on Peter's words in his letter. Because one of the things Peter evidences very well in the Gospels is his lack of ability to pray but how great he is at sleeping. And here we find him and the two, James and John, sleeping again and again after the admonition of Jesus is coming to them to pray. Same thing on the Mount of Transfiguration. It says in in one of the accounts that Peter and the two were in deep sleep when the vision of Jesus, even on the glorious mountain, we find these guys sleeping. But they would learn how to pray, wouldn't they? And it's hope for us to be sanctified and and to grow in grace and how merciful God is with us as His people. That He knows our frame and remembers we're but dust and that we can become uh, better at prayer and more spiritually minded and so forth to give encouragement to others. So the atmosphere at this point in our Lord's history has obviously become increasingly sober and serious. This is 
right before our Lord was betrayed. It's on the eve of His crucifixion. The disciples have left the house of, of the Passover in the upper room. On their way to Gethsemane, songs were sung. At this point, all singing is, is over. And they move through the night to this garden to pray. Our Lord has broken through several times in the trip to the garden in an effort to encourage His disciples as the gathering storm of the cross comes. A day of salvation it will be, but humanly speaking, the events are more than the disciples will be able to bear without the word and help of their Lord. And as we read in this, and as we read of our Savior's experience in this account, we read of one who is in spirit, increasingly alone. He is with his disciples, but they're limited in the comfort they're able to bring because they don't understand the significance of what is happening. It seems to be part of his suffering that he must do what he's about to do alone. Our salvation is dependent on one man, this man. And no one could help him. No one could help him atone for the sins of the human race. It's a work that only Jesus alone could ever do. And here we find him alone in heart and mind going to the cross, anticipating the agony of the cross. And even this is part of his suffering. He goes forth in the knowledge of what God is doing, aware that eternal, the eternal salvation for simple men depends on the successful completion of his work over the next couple of days. And no one on earth seems to get it or understand. And it's our Savior here, brethren, walking by faith and in obedience to the Father, proceeding to the hour of His betrayal, trial, and death on the cross, all alone in His understanding, with visions of the cup of wrath at this point, becoming clearer and clearer, and what that would mean as the hour draws near. And this is His response. This is what He's experiencing as we read Matthew's account here in chapter 26. They're going to one of the usual places of prayer. And I just want us for a few minutes to consider some things from this account. First of all, in His hour of need, Jesus takes His disciples with Him. He took with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He begins to do what he encouraged himself to do in the songs, no doubt, he sang earlier from the Hillel in Psalms 113 through 118 with the terrors of anticipation becoming sharper and sharper, 116.4 says, Then I called upon the name of the Lord. In his hour of distress, 
He sanctifies the night for prayer. To watch with Christ is to pray with Christ. He says in Luke to them, Luke's account, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So he's feeling a weight that's too much for his humanity to bear alone. He's faced with the will of his God that's bringing him to the cross, and in his desire to obey him, he struggles and is weighed down with the difficulty and horror of God's will. It's too much for our Lord to bear without the help of his God. Hugh Martin, as he writes in the shadow of Calvary on this experience, has a beautiful way of describing how the powers of deity in Christ in this one person have retreated. And he must suffer in his humanity in ways his deity can't, cannot come to, to, to rescue. Who can understand that? Now that's a thought, that's an idea, nobody knows. But we see a man here in the garden, don't we, brethren? We see the humanity of Christ coming forward powerfully here as he agonizes in anticipation of the cross and goes to prayer, as men, as all of us should do. Nobody prayed more in their life than Jesus Christ. He teaches us how to be men and women. The essence of being a human being is that we're dependent and that we need God, as the, as the songwriter says, every hour. Prayerfully dependent. In prosperity, when we're on the mountain of transfiguration, He took them up there, Luke tells us, to pray. When His glory was being revealed, He was praying when his face changed in appearance. And in suffering, he's seeking God. He's praying. Prosperity, adversity. There is not a season we go through, brethren, that we shouldn't be constantly in prayer. As we saw this morning, in prosperity and in glory and in spiritual highs of experience, we need to pray we will remember that ultimate glory and heaven is not yet, that it's coming. That we're still here and we still need to discern and understand what God's will is, that we would take up our cross, which is His will for us, and follow the Savior. And not loving our lives in this world, but losing them for Christ. So he's feeling the weight of his responsibility, coming late at night into the garden, when all Jerusalem is sleeping to watch and pray. pray. He comes to God to seek his help to appeal unto him, and he has called a prayer meeting in which he wants his disciples to watch and pray too. Soon they would all flee, brethren, but our Lord considered his disciples to be instruments of his Father to comfort his soul. Perhaps even if they were not able to watch and pray, that just the sight of them being there would serve to lift his soul by God's grace. From the, distress, from the distress and the anguish that he felt. The sight of Peter, James, and John would encourage him that what Isaiah wrote so long ago was going to happen, that as a result of the anguish of his soul, 
he will see it and be satisfied. That though many did not receive him when he came into the world and to his own people and preached and revealed himself to him, children of Abraham would be the ones who would crucify him. Yet his disciples would remind him by their presence that many will believe the report, and that his death will become the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That he will see the anguish of his soul and be satisfied. So, his disciples are with him, but they're falling asleep, but just their presence, perhaps, is an encouragement to them. And we learn from that, brethren, to never underestimate the power of your presence to other people in their hour of need. It's often not the words that our loved ones speak to us or a church member. It's their hug. It's their presence. It's their letter that shows up, which more than the words in the letter is an expression of your love for them, that you're thinking about them and the thought of you brings encouragement to the souls of, of other people. Nothing could be farther from the truth. You know, sometimes younger people or people new to prayer meeting, they don't want to go, they're not used to praying, and the prayers aren't that good. Listen, it's not your prayers that people are encouraged about, it's your presence. That a young person's in the faith. That a young person's walking with Christ. And you've offered everything you're probably going to offer that night by just showing up. The power of your presence to other people is like these three were. And, and even the eight that were left at the gate of the garden were to Christ. Secondly, the source of our Savior's grief and distress. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul's deeply grieved to the point of death. As we read of our Savior in the garden, there's no doubt that he's weighed down, that he's suffering. As they come there, he's very agitated and grieved. No doubt the disciples see it in his countenance, hear it in his voice, see it in his face. He expresses to his disciples that this suffering has root in his soul. He's not primarily suffering from some physical trial or affliction, but the source of his grief is coming from within. His soul is weighed down. His inner being is being pressed. And uh, this was evident in his word and in his countenance. The thoughts of what's about to happen are, are pressing in on. The grief and distress of our Lord is connected to the cup of God's wrath He's about to be given the next day. The first part of His prayers, we discover this. He went a little beyond them and fell on His face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me, yet not as I will, but as you will. It seems our Lord's being given a glimpse into the furnace of God's wrath on this night. As Edwards, Jonathan Edwards describes it, he understood that he came to save and that in order to save his people from their sins, he was going to have to die for them. 
He was conscious of this all through his ministry, but the time is at hand. In other parts, in his dealings with the apostles, he spoke of it. Matthew 16, and for the remainder of of Matthew's account, he would speak to them as he spoke in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So the increase of his distress and suffering over the thoughts of his death are being aggravated by the fact that it's here. The hour has come. It's about to actually happen. He's being called at this point in his life to perform the hardest part of the job and of the mission that his father sent him to accomplish. Jonathan Edwards again says, this was the thing that filled his soul with horror and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. What was that human nature of Christ to such mighty wrath as this? The wrath distressed him so that an hour before his betrayal, our Lord prays, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He doesn't want to drink it. He has an impulse and a desire to be relieved from the cup. If it's possible, Lord, can you take it away? Obviously, he always concludes, not my will, your will be done. The cup of God's wrath must be terrible. If Jesus, if it brought him to pray this prayer. What Christ has saved us from, brothers and sisters, must be terrible. If he himself didn't want to drink it, certainly did not go into the experience flippantly. Pray that it would be removed. If it be possible, but not my will, your will be done. It was horrible as he apprehended it. And this, it seems, was primarily the source of the deep grief to the point of death that weighed our Lord down. It's the sore trial of anticipation. So the wrath of God's not being poured out yet, but it's coming. Spiritual understanding and presence of the Spirit of God within our Lord made this trial even greater. Think with me, every type of Christ in the Old Testament is being brought before His mind. He knows what those lambs signified and who they pointed to. All the blood that was spilt. All of the Old Testament types in the in the tablet in the temple that represented the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. All of that is coming into his mind and informing him of what this is going to be like and how horrible it's going to be. So acutely spiritually minded was Jesus that none of these things went without notice and were not part of the information that 
that caused this great agony that he suffered in his soul. He understood how they spoke of him, how they pointed to him, how they culminated culminated in him. The load of the sin he would bear by the sheer number of sacrifices through the years that were made for sin and the just judgment that he would receive for every one. Most of all the passages spoke of the nature and horror of his death, particularly must have poured into his mind. Isaiah 53, he understood, was speaking of him. He was able to apply scriptures that spoke of his identity. Isaiah 61, at the beginning of his ministry in Luke 4, 21. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he understood that the next day Isaiah 53 was about to be fulfilled in history in him on the cross. Our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. What did this piercing and crushing of the Father mean to him? It was horrible for him. The weight of millions depending on him to go to the cross. Think about the stress that Jesus lived with. We all have stress to one degree or another, and sometimes we get weighed down by by our stress. Stress has the capacity to debilitate us, doesn't it? It has the ability to cause us to just give up. We get so discouraged, we get so overwhelmed by the weight of responsibilities that we have, by the difficulty, by the stress in relationships, or the potential uh, you know, damaging of a relationship, or loss of a relationship, or financial pressures or stress, or COVID uh, pressures and stresses and fears. Political stresses in this environment we're living in. This march toward a totalitarian state, it seems, we're engaged in. It's weighty, it's stressful, and we get weighed down, and we get discouraged, and we cry, and we give up, and it impacts our ability to live. But think about the stress Jesus had. He had the weight of millions of people on his shoulders right now. If he failed in one little aspect in his work of being pure and spotless and perfect up until the time of his death and through his death, our salvation would be lost. Who could bear that weight, brethren? We couldn't bear the weight for our own salvation. This is why John says the commandments of God are not burdensome. Why? Because you're not called to obey God perfectly to save yourself. Thank God. What a stress that relieves from us. That we don't have to live perfectly in order to save ourselves. Can you imagine if we did? We'd give up. There's no way we could do it. The stress of that would be too much. The commandments of God aren't burdensome to us because He did what we could never do. But He had the burden of God's commandments in one sense, relative to the difficulty of it. And this was the greatest part, the greatest, most significant, most difficult part of the work of Christ. To be obedient, as we read in Scriptures, to death, even death on the cross.
if it be possible, remove this cup. And it's weighing down on the man, isn't it? He's grieved to death. He's feeling this enormous weight upon his soul spiritually. One has said that when his death came clearly into view on that night, its terror, its terror exceeded his expectations. Through our Lord's reaction to the thought of his suffering, we have to learn about the horrors of hell and the sinfulness of sin. Sin must be really bad if it deserves this kind of punishment that exceeded Christ's anticipation, the terror and horror. Now we think of those hymns, He who thinks of sin but lightly, see him stricken on the tree. I have to say this has impressed me as I've read through Hugh Martin's book, Shadow of Calvary, and as he's going through Gethsemane. Reminds me of the sinfulness of sin when we think of this. Reminds me of the horror of hell. Can I tell you something? You don't want to go to hell, my friend, my loved one, if this is how Jesus reacts. He didn't want to go there. You certainly don't want to go there. And you don't have to go there. Because he went there for you. He's enduring all this, not for his own sin, but for your sin. So that your sin could be paid for. So that your sin could be atoned for. Away with demonic liberal teaching that says Jesus was just a good example. Oh no. He's an atoning Savior. That's what's happening here. He's an atoning Savior. What joy it fills our heart as as we see this. As we read of, of the horror He experienced, but it's horror that we get to escape. What love, what love that Christ had. I mean, why should he save Peter, James, and John? I mean, all they did was sleep. <laughs> Disobedience. Watch them pray. <laughs> these guys didn't, didn't need melatonin. I don't know what they were taking. But these guys could sleep like babies, man. Whether in glory on the mount or whether in grief in Gethsemane. Amazing. But he loved them nonetheless to the end. Isn't that what we read in John? Despite their failings and weakness, and he loves us the same, brother. In our Lord's trial of anticipation, he goes to the Father in prayer. That's the third point here. Psalm 121.1 I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He didn't run to a human doctor. He didn't run to a human psychologist. He didn't run to someone else for an answer. He knew that the only answer 
that he needed was from heaven. The only help that could be given was spiritual, and it was from God the Father. And man, how we have to wrap our minds and hearts around this. How we need to preach this from the church and to our friends and to this community and to this nation and to this world. Man does not have the help you so desperately need. Only God does. And he's not far from any of us. Goes a little beyond them, falls on his face, and he prays, My Father. That's all we hear again and again. My Father. Makes his request known. He opens his heart. But he does so with total submission to the will of God, doesn't he? Yet not as I will, but as you will. He knows that this is the work of God. He is bending his path. Who can make it straight? This is God's will for me. And only God can change it, if it be his will. Nobody's doing this to me, humanly speaking. This is the will of God. This is the will of God, and I must go to Him if there will be relief, or at least for grace, to accomplish all that He has asked of me. So, brethren, we can pray for deliverance from trial. And as we think of those we pray each week on our prayer sheet, prayer meeting, we can pray that God would give them deliverance. But always in the end, we should end our prayers with submission to His will. Revealing a faith that truly believes, that truly believes and embraces that whatever my God ordains is right. may not be easy, but it's right. But we can certainly pray, Lord, if this be your will, strengthen me. Strengthen me in the midst of it. Help me in it. Help me to accomplish it. He teaches us how we can run to our Heavenly Father when we're in trouble, when we feel that His call is too much for us to bear, when we're tempted to be upset with Him and tempted to unbelief in evil thoughts of God and of His way and of His will. Our Lord teaches us that our Heavenly Father knows our frame and He remembers that we are dust. He understands weakness, the weakness we feel in our efforts to accomplish His will. He doesn't turn away His Son. An answer to him, and he won't won't turn us away. He doesn't charge his son with sin for even thinking that the cup could be removed. But he holds him. He strengthens him as he runs into his arms with tears. And fearful on one level of the wrath to come, terrified by it. And it's an example for us. And it's an example and a lesson we should teach our kids that they can go to God like this. That He will hear them. That He will help them. He can do more for them than Dad can. He can do more for them than Mom can. He's the Heavenly Father. Heavenly power. Heavenly grace. Go right to Him in the middle of the night or whatever fear comes your way. And He will hear you. So we want to move forthly to see the help that he receives through this prayer in trial. Luke tells us about it in Luke 22.43. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. 
so the Lord, his father, tells the son, no, the cup can't pass. I mean, if God the Father tells God the Son no, then we should expect sometimes he'll tell us no, right? That his will would be done. Because his will is best for us and for others. He didn't take away the trial, but he sent an angel to strengthen him so that he would be elevated from the death to which his grief was bringing him in, in his soul. He bore him up on eagle, eagle's wings. And you can read of the account of the disposition and the strength of heart Jesus had when he comes out of this Gethsemane experience in prayer. They come to arrest him. They didn't have to find him hiding behind a tree like Adam was hiding in the garden. Jesus comes out to the front of it. And says, whom do you seek? In power and in strength, he's ready. He's been fortified. They say, Jesus, I am he. They all fall down before him three times. He doesn't hide behind the apostles. Comes right out and from that moment till the time he gives up the spirit, all we see, brethren, is an empowered Glorious Savior fulfilling the mission and the work God gave him to do. But it wasn't until after his soul was weighed down with grief and he wrestled with God in prayer so that his body almost blew up. Great sweat mixed with blood dripping from the man as he prays for the will of God to be done. You could follow the prayers of the Lord Jesus as you take the different accounts together. He only prayed, let this cup pass if it be your will. But not my will, your be done. Every other prayer after that was, your will be done. Your will be done. He understood it was a no and that he was going to have to go through it. So he said, all right, Lord, strengthen. Strengthen. Your will be done. And here comes the angel to strengthen him. Here comes the angel to empower him. This is where Hugh Martin comes up with it. We don't know exactly what this angel said. But he teases out this idea that I thought was spirit-filled and exceptional. God sends the angel to worship his son. Let all the gods, let all the angels, let all the supernatural ones worship you, we read in the Psalms. Jesus was the object of worship. Not just the worship of men, but the worship of angels before men knew He existed. The angels bowed before Jesus. And here an angel comes to minister to Him, to worship And why is this important? Because he reminded Christ that yes, the will of God is the cross, but glory is coming again. You will be in glory with your Father like you had before the world began. Jesus needed to be reminded in this hour of the 
glory of the future, of the other side of the cross, of the exaltation, of the success of His work, of the completion of His work, that at one point in history it will be finished and you'll be exalted again. And you'll be lifted up to a place of exceeding greatness and glory at the right hand of the Father again. You'll be raised from the dead. Hugh Martin writes, Oh, this was precisely the ministration of strength to his fainting soul, which the crisis of his anguish required. This was to him as the foretaste of his coming glory when angels and principalities and powers would be subjected to Him. And at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. This worshiping angel was to Him as His Father's messenger, meeting Him in the moment of profound abasement to tell Him of the exaltation that would follow. This answer to His prayer, and it's got me, was like the voice of God saying to the enfeebled man of Gethsemane, your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. What a message from heaven. The Lord Jesus, God from God. Picture and a reminder of the glory. A picture and a reminder that this isn't the last chapter. That you will be successful. And that your throne, O oh God, will be forever and ever. Isn't that amazing? Something about that just got me. So like this morning, we talked about those seasons of glory and prosperity in our lives. What do we need to be reminded of as Christians? The cross. Cross first, then glory. Don't make your heaven here in this life. Heaven is coming. Put your hope on the age to come, not now. Don't be tempted to do it now when things go well. Glory's coming. But we also, we need another reminder, don't we, brethren? You know, we're suffering. A lot of people in this congregation can't be here because they're suffering. Many are here and they're suffering. Old age is catching up to you. You've got crazy pain. You can't think straight. You're breaking down. You're failing. Getting older. It's difficult. It's hard. Don't get discouraged. Don't get despairing. Guess what? Glory is coming. My dear parents and older saints in this place and others struggling with relational difficulty, this isn't the last chapter. Glory's coming. You look around at this world, at this country, what's going to be of it? Where's our country going? Don't put your hope on America. Our hope, our hope's the kingdom of God. A kingdom that will know no end. A kingdom that always knows increase, as we read in Daniel, and will know no end. An eternal kingdom is what we're a part of. One that can't be taken away. Jesus is on His throne. There will be no election for Him in 2024. 
It's not up for election. It's not up for our vote, our vote. Because God the Father set him upon that throne. You only get to be there if God sets you there. And he will reign until every enemy is put under his feet. And one day we will see, though men curse him and ignore him and don't want to hear about him now, one day he'll be recognized outwardly by everyone who has ever lived and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It grieves us when we look around and people don't do that now. But one day they will, whether they want to or not. Glory's coming. What a grief, brethren, when we read in the newspaper, when we read online or wherever we're getting our news, of the increase of suicide in our country among nine and ten year old kids where they've given up hope. And the only hope they see for themselves is taking their own lives. Here's the answer. Jesus Christ. They can look to God. They can look to Christ. He can save them. He can help them. He can pour light into their darkened, despairing souls. That this experience they're going through doesn't have to be the last chapter. Don't listen to Satan. Don't listen to the devil. It's all a lie. Your only hope is not to take your own life. Your only hope is Jesus Christ. Running to drugs. He used to sell an opioid abuse deterrent medicine. Why? Because the opioid crisis. People are stealing their grandparents, parents, morphine and Oxycontin, fentanyl. I heard a sad story of a young girl who stole her grandmother's fentanyl patch chewed it up to get high and died. Here her grandmother is on hospice, going to lose her life in days or weeks. Pain medicine to control the pain until the end. And she buries her granddaughter before her. Running to drugs, running to alcohol, running to any other thing when you can run directly to God. And He can fill your soul. Look, if He can give encouragement to the Savior going to the cross... He can help us out of any despair we will ever encounter. And that is a message, brethren, we need to live. That's a message we need to share with a despairing world. They're not as happy as they look. There's another face that shows up after the TikTok video that gets sent. There's another face behind what you see in social media. It's a grieving, despairing It's a face that needs Man, how blessed we are, brethren, to have Jesus. He did this for us. Oh, may we serve Him better. May we love Him more. May we be more thankful for Him. May we preach Him. May we put our hope in Him. May we put our hope in Him. And may He give us the strength that we need. What a blessing to know that our Savior went to this cross, His throne, is forever and ever. Let's pray.